to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Well, praise God for his word. This is um, a very familiar passage to all of us. It It contains some of the sweetest words ever uttered on this earth. And uh, in the first part of this chapter, as we look at verses 1 through 10, you know, we are shown God's initiative and God's work in salvation. When we speak of being born again, when we speak of being born from above, that's what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus, that there is, there is a, a work of God that is worked out in the heart of a man, and it's in theological terms, it's called the work of regeneration. Um, and uh, in the first part, we see God's work in salvation, specifically in the work of regeneration or recreating man spiritually, described and defined by the Lord himself as being born again, as being born again. That man cannot be saved unless he is born again. That humanity cannot see the kingdom of God, much less enter it, unless they are born of the Spirit of God. That is what we looked at the last time here in the Gospel of John. And it is the work of Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to birth a man anew. And without it, no man shall see the Lord. It's an impossibility for any of humanity to enter into the kingdom, much less, it says, it's, unless you, you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God, much less enter into it. So in verse 8 of this passage, we have a clue to the meaning of our text today. You know, what we read about the testimony and why Nicodemus, and why the Jewish nation didn't receive. And um, verse 8 says this way, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So, notice that word, so is everyone that is who is born of the Spirit. That there's a, there's a power within that we can't identify by sight. We cannot, we don't understand the force that is moving this person who is born of the Spirit unless we are spiritual. There's, any, there's a hidden force just as the wind blows and you see the action of the wind. You know, the wind is an unseen force, but it is... It produces quite visible results. 
so is everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. If we say that we love God and keep not His commandments, we are lying. So the passage that I read today for our text is is man's side, is man's perspective, is what happens in the man who is born again. The Holy Spirit is God, and if He births you, He also indwells you, and you begin to have visible effects in your life because of Him. Someone may look at your life and wonder, well, what makes you do this or that? What is causing you? What is the driving factor of your life? They might wonder what it is. Well, it is the unseen force or rather person inside you that is moving you. If this is not happening, maybe you're not born of the Spirit. So our text today here in John 3 verses 10 through 21 shows us the human perspective in salvation. The key word here in this passage is believe, used seven times in this passage. God's work of salvation in our lives is always marked by believing on our part. You cannot be born of the Spirit of God without manifesting faith, without manifesting belief in Him. There has to be evidence of the force of the Spirit if the Spirit is indeed in you. We have Paul saying it this way in Romans 8 where he says, in verse 9, But you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Verse 15 says this way, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these and only these are the Son of God. And I added only these. But it is making a clear statement, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And so if you are born of the Spirit of God, you will manifest the evidence of that force, that person, that power within. There is no possibility otherwise. He is God after all. He has omnipotent power. So for some of you younger believers, I know this was a difficult way back. It was it was a little it was difficult for me to discern this this play between faith and belief and believing and believe is simply the verb form of the noun faith. In my concordance, I could not find the word faith in all the gospel of John. I was almost shocked by that. I could not find the word faith In the Gospel of John, according to my concordance, John uses the verb form of the word faith. It is called believe. He who believes, seven times in this passage is the, is the word believe or believes. 
And it's implied in this also in John where he says, you do not receive. That is unbelief, you see. John chose to write this as an action word. The word faith is the noun and the word believe is the verb form of that same word. And John uses the verb form that is translated believe or believes. And so we have that uh, in this passage as a bit of a background. Today, I want to give you three headings from this text. The first one is in verses 11 and 12. And I want to title this first heading, Ignorance or Unbelief. Ignorance or Unbelief. Let me read verse 11 again. Most assuredly I say to you, or verily, verily, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify that what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. All of those pronouns are we and our, you know, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Um, Then in verse 12, if I have told you earthly things, And you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So verses 10 through 12 represent the Lord's response, at least in part, to the question of verse 9. Nicodemus answers and says, well, how can this be? How is it possible for these things to occur in a man? And now Christ is saying that... His answer is here, at least in part, given in his testimony, his witness, his his word, his speaking. Jesus said, you are the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? He continues, most assuredly, verily, verily, you cannot claim ignorance. That's basically, in a nutshell, Jesus is addressing the issue of the of well we're claiming ignorance here we speak to you what we know and testify what we have seen our witness has come to you nicodemus you know i am thinking that jesus is probably here referring to the word of god to them in the old testament that there was a witness there was a teaching of the need for regeneration in the old testament what about the ritual washings all the You know, as it says in verse 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, that need for cleansing, that need for washing, that need for regeneration. You have it, in, for example, in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, where Ezekiel is writing to them and says, I will give to them a new heart. I will put my spirit within them. There has been, you know, God has not been silent about the topic of verses 1 through 10 in the scriptures that they did have. And Nicodemus, being a teacher of Israel, should have known that there was such a thing as having to be cleansed from within. The problem is, you do not receive our witness. That's the problem. 
It is not ignorance. It is called unbelief. It is unbelief. That's what Jesus indicts um, Nicodemus with here is we have spoken to these. We have gotten up early and spoken to you these things. You do not receive what we're telling you. Receive here is synonymous with believe. If you believe the messenger, you would receive the message. Interestingly, you is plural here in verse 11. Most assuredly, I say to you, plural. That is referring back to verse 2 where Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, We know that you are a teacher come from God, speaking and representing the Sanhedrin or the, the whole, all of the, maybe even all of the Pharisees in a sense. Nicodemus says, We know that you are a teacher come from God. And now Christ is saying, You, the nation of Israel as a whole, have not received the testimony, the witness, the speaking that we have given to you. You have not received it. And so this unbelief is typical of the nation as a whole. If I, Jesus says, if I have used earthly terms in my teaching, verse 12, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I use heavenly terms? You know, I, I, I'm a, I was a little stumped by verse 12. But I believe what he is saying. I am in your environment. You are not in mine. I have condescended to break down these great spiritual truths in terms that you should be able to understand. Whether it's using water and the Spirit, or whether it's being born again. The great doctrine of regeneration is broken down to us to understand that God must recreate us. And so Jesus is saying, if I have declared to you these things in earthly terms or in earthly language, so to speak, and you don't receive them, how, if I would speak to you with the tongues of angels, how would you know? I am in your environment. I teach according to your perception, and still you don't believe. Your problem, Nicodemus, as a nation is not intellectual. Your problem is moral. You have a moral problem. It's not that you don't know. It's that you don't want to receive what I've told you. And so ignorance is an intellectual problem. But unbelief is a moral issue. It is where we choose not to believe what someone has told us to be true. That is, you don't want to believe Well, that in a nutshell describes the problem. We have been giving you this testimony, but you do not receive it. Let's go to uh, heading number 2, verses 13 through 17. And this I've titled, God's Initiative in Dealing with Our Unbelief. God's initiative, God's prerogative to come and... 
deal with us in our unbelief, to, to, to take away every opportunity that we might have of ignorance, to take away every opportunity or every excuse that we could possibly raise up and say, God, I didn't know what you wanted. Notice what he says in verse 13. No man has ever ascended to heaven. No man by his own power has ever come up to heaven and discovered what needs to be discovered about God and himself. No man. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. No one, not a one of us, has been able to rise up to glory, find out anything about God, and then come back down and declare it to the rest of us. No. The Son of Man had to come down. This is the initiative of Almighty God to deal with our unbelief, our unwillingness to submit to God. God has condescended to give us His Son to show us His divine character. In the Old Testament, God related to His people from heaven. You know... For an example, Second Chronicles seven fourteen. Let me just flip back quickly to that. You, you don't have to go there. Second Chronicles in verse seven. I mean, chapter seven and verse fourteen. A familiar passage. Many of us have it on our wall. We have it on our wall, and it says something interesting. And let me see seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. In Psalm 80, in verse 14, it says this way, Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. Brother Terry was in Nehemiah 9.13 where he came across this verse I wanted to share with you in regards to You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true, and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You have it also in Psalm 57 where it reads this way. Notice the correlation between these Old Testament passages. In verse 3 of Psalm 57, He shall send from heaven and save me he reproaches the one who would swallow me up god shall send forth his mercy and his truth god was dealing with his old testament people from heaven but in verse 13 god sent his son to earth he is now dealing with us with god on earth the son of man came down from heaven to speak and to testify and to bear witness None of us earthbound creatures have ever ascended to God 
to find and search out the truth of God. No, God came to man. John 1.18, he says that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Praise God that in our unbelief, God had the initiative to come to us. We were not coming to Him. And so here now, in verses 14 through 17, as I said, are the sweetest and the kindest and the most loving words ever heard by mankind. Here is the good news of the gospel. And not only did the Son of Man come down from heaven to bring the good news of salvation, but he himself is our salvation. Notice verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And, and you can, I, I initially thought I would go and read Numbers 21, verses 5 through 9. You can do that on your own. But it is the story of the children of Israel complaining and God sending serpents to them. And they were bitten. You know the story. But they were complaining and God instructed Moses to raise up a bronze snake on a pole as salvation. The salvation from the judgment that he has sent upon them for their sin. You see, they had sinned through complaining. The serpents came and bit them. And by the way, the title of this message I would call Snake Bit. We're snake bit. And as the children of Israel complained and the fiery serpents came by, I think they were fiery serpents because their bite caused an, a fiery inflammation. They, they were bitten and they had a fever. They, I, mean, I believe they were literally dying. They probably had a high fever. They were, they were under judgment because of their complaining. And they even said, we loathe this worthless bread. Isn't that a shame? The very providence of God that was given to them in the wilderness, they were just irritated. We loathe this worthless bread. And God said, okay, I will send you something that, that will give you loathing. The people who were snake bit had to look at the non-venomous snake on the pole to be healed. As Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. God provided the means for the people to escape the sentence of death that he had imposed on them for their sin. But it required faith. Looking to the snake was their act of believing. I can just imagine if you were in the camp at the time of these snakes, and, and notice that the children of Israel cried out to Moses and said, Ask God to remove these snakes. Well, God didn't do that, did he? He just sent a cure for it. And that is a bit of an analogy for us. If the snake is sin, we are still encompassed about by snakes, aren't we? 
And as unbelievers, when we are snake bit, we have the venom and the poison of this condemnation flowing in our lives. But God provided the means for the people to escape that sentence. And they could look up to this bronze serpent. And when they looked, they were healed. And if that's not a miracle, then I, sorry, I can't help you. They were, it was a miracle by God to deliver them from the condemnation of their sin. And I can just imagine there were probably a lot of evangelists in that camp at that time. There might have been some really stubborn people who died having heard the word that said, Look to the snake. What good is that going to do me? I was bitten by a snake. Why would I look at one? You know, why would I want to look at a snake? Why would I look at a bronze snake lifted on a pole? And then the people would beg them, come on out, come, come look at the snake. And if they were so feverish that they couldn't move, I'm sure they took the tent down around them so that they could just raise their eyes and see the snake. And I am sure this is another beauty of the gospel is that that as Jesus Christ came down to earth to, to make himself clear to us, so Moses lifted up the serpent so that when we can't move, when we can't come, we're bedfast. And we lift up the snake so that all can see. Just as Terry said, the pulpit is elevated. The word of God is elevated so, so that it, is, it, is, it has priority. It's the same way with the snake. It was raised up so the people could see the solution to their problem. But through the hardness of their hearts, I am sure people were still dying because they were not looking to the snake. They were dying. But as many as looked were healed. Whosoever will believe on him shall not perish. As Moses lifted up the serpent. The Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This truth, brothers and sisters, is so vital for your salvation that God made His own illustration for it. He didn't leave it to me to come up with an illustration. No, God made an illustration in the Old Testament. That we can bring it over to the New Testament. And John, Christ says to Nicodemus, to a well-known teacher who knew this passage and said, As Moses, you see, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Must be lifted up. Even so, that whoever believes. You see, we are all snake bit. We're all snake bit, but some of us are in recovery. Some of us have looked, and we are in recovery. We are no longer considered snake bit. We are recovering. And some of us love our misery so much we refuse to look. 
But the Lord, when the people were, they were dying from the snake bites, they asked Moses to ask the Lord for the removal of the serpents, but the Lord simply gave them the solution. He gave them the solution to their problem rather than taking away the snakes. He just gave them the remedy. So it is today. The serpent is sin. And all of us are bitten. But whoever believes in him shall not perish. Notice verse 16. Verse 16 begins with the word for. For God so loved the world. You know, this word for is a connecting link to the previous that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, not temporal life, not just a short-term uh, solution from a snake bite. No, eternal life for God so loved. God so loved the world. This speaks of the motive for God's initiative to your unbelief. Because God loved, yes, so loved the world. He loved to such a degree. How did God love the world? Like so. God so loved the world. With such magnitude, with such passion, he loved the world. To such an extent that he did not withhold his most precious beloved son, you see, He did not withhold the remedy for man's wickedness, man's cussedness. Even when the only remedy was his only begotten son. Notice what he says. God so loved the world. Here is the scope now of his initiative. Yes, his love was such a love, but now it is saying that it was for the world that world it's a large scope here is how broad his love how vast beyond all measure we sing that whoever we see whoever believes this phrase is found here twice that whoever believes you see like verily verily it's repeated And though God could have sent his son to condemn the world because we rightly deserve that, he did not do so. He sent his beloved son to be lifted up on Calvary's cross to be the antidote for the venom and poison of sin. Notice the imperative in verse 14. I have to go back to that. Notice the imperative. Where Christ says to Nicodemus, even so must. We were looking at that word the last time I preached out of John. It says, most assuredly I say to you, unless. Or, what did he say in verse 5? Unless. And then in verse 7, he says, you must be 
born again. There is an absolute imperative. And if you want to be saved, then the Son of Man must be lifted up. This tells us very clearly that there is no other salvation whatsoever anywhere in all the world, in all of heaven. There's no salvation other than the lifting up of the Son of Man. The Son of Man must be lifted up that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, through Christ, might be saved. And again, these are very familiar passages, but we have just simply not, we, we have not grasped the, the incredible initiative behind them. That God so loved, with such a scope, with such passion, with such fervency that he gave his son for us. Well, that was the good news. That was the good news. The last heading I want to give you is found in verses 18 through 21. And it is titled, The Condemnation of Unbelief. So first off, we had the heading of ignorance or unbelief. Which is it? It's clearly unbelief. The second part is that initiative of Almighty God coming down from heaven, giving us of His beloved Son, that we might be saved. Verses 18 through 21. The condemnation of unbelief. Here. Here, unbeliever, is where I get your blood off of my hands. I know something about you, unbeliever, that I have to tell you. Verse 18, he begins with the happy state of those who believe. Notice verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. Absolute glorious statement. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you. There is no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. If you believe in him, there is no condemnation. He who believes in him is not condemned. Now, sinners, yes. Even great sinners, convicted sinners, guilty sinners, but by faith not condemned. You see, this word condemned is the Greek word krino. It means to distinguish. That is to decide. Either mentally or judicially. You have come to a conclusion. That's the meaning of this word in verse 18. Condemned. It means to mark out. Interestingly, 
We have another Old Testament um, passage that speaks into this in Ezekiel. Ezekiel verse nine, chapter 9. Now this is a somewhat... Ezekiel is a, a hard book for me. But Ezekiel chapter 9... This word condemned is the idea we find here in chapter 9. Now listen, in chapter 8 of Ezekiel, God is showing Ezekiel a vision of all the abominations of Judah. How that they were, there were 25 elders in the, at the, uh, in the temple with their backs turned toward the altar and worshiping the sun. There were, there was all sorts of abominations that, that, that God showed to Ezekiel in chapter 8. Notice then what he says in chapter 9. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen, and had a writer's inkhorn at his side, they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, which, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writer's inkhorn, on, inkhorn at his side, and the Lord said to this man who had this inkhorn, Now listen, follow with me. Go through the midst of the city. Through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and whoever he doesn't mark, you kill him. You take him out. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young, old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. They, they started at the top. You can read that. The idea of condemn is that distinguishing mark, so to speak, that God put on those who sighed and cried over the abominations that were going on in the land of Israel, in the nation of Israel. That sighing and crying was the mark of their faith in God and of their, their vexed soul. Here we have to live in this abominable nation who is worshiping all of these false idols, all of, these, all of this wickedness that's going on. And we know we can relate to this. I hope that you can. I hope that you are sighing and crying over the abominations of this land. We are, are we not? Amen? Well, listen. God knows those. God knows those who are His, and He marked these. He distinguished them from the others. 
All the rest were killed. Now, he who does not believe is condemned already. He who does not believe is currently condemned. It's not a future condemnation. He is condemned right now. That means, so to speak, that God has put a mark on that unbeliever, marked out, this one marked out for destruction. That unbeliever is condemned already, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Condemned already, currently distinguished, marked out for destruction, set apart for vengeance, charged and convicted and sentenced. Sentenced not only, but sentenced to death. Interestingly, your execution date is already set. You just don't know when that is. Your condemnation is already decided. It is decided because you're an unbeliever. You have chosen not to hear. You've chosen not to receive. You've chosen not to believe. The word of God says you are condemned currently. You are living your life under the darkest cloud of doom imaginable. If you're an unbeliever here today, your sentence, your, the decision is already made. If you die in that state, you will die to all hope. And so those who enter herein shall give up all hope. The great and holy God has set his wrath upon you. The Bible actually calls you a child of wrath. You have a mark on your forehead, but it's not for good. You, have a, you are distinguished. You're set aside. You are you're marked out for this destruction. Why? Why? Because you refuse to believe. You refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You reject his offer of acquittal. He has just declared, he has just come to you that you might believe his statement. You who do not believe are currently and actively condemned. And the condemnation is more than just destruction in eternity. You know, your condemnation is currently taking effect. You are currently wrecking your life. You are currently adding insult upon injury. You are currently heaping up. The dam of God's wrath is piling up behind you. It is currently building, my friend. You know, you, you cannot, you know, claim ignorance. I, I have told you. What God has said about those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. 
The decision has been made. Your destruction is both imminent and not only just, it could be tonight, it's also eternal. It's not just soon, but it's everlasting. You see, God has decided that forgiveness for sins is by His grace through faith. That, that through believing in Him and what He has said, that's, that's how you come to this place of no condemnation. Through believing what He has said, you see. God will not accept your repentance. Let me repeat this. God will not accept your repentance after you have met Him face to face. Because at that point, the opportunity for faith is gone forever. The opportunity to glorify God by trusting what he has said is gone forever, you see. God has decided that he will be glorified by you believing, not seeing, but believing what he has said about himself and your condition. And he has given us all of this testimony. God is in his initiative coming, giving us reasons to believe. See, the condemnation that you are facing is greater because you know more. You can't wait to prove his existence and his veracity by sight and then repent. It's an impossibility. It's too late. You cannot glorify God at that point through faith. You have seen him. And now you know him to be true, but it's forever too late. God has decided that we do this by faith. How? Just think about this. I am, I am glorified to an extent, in an earthly sense, if my character is of such a nature that when I say something, people act on it. Right? If I tell you that I will meet you in New York City at 9.30 on September the 30th, 2055... And my character is of such a nature that you will be there to meet me. That is a glorification for me. That man has declared he put his character on the line and he has promised that he would be there. That's, that is a glory to me. You see how God has decided that he will be glorified by you believing what he said. That you are a sinner and therefore you must believe in Christ. And when you, do not, when you refuse to believe in Christ, there is now no more hope for you. There's no other avenue of forgiveness. Because the Son of Man must be lifted up in order, to be saved, for, in order for you to be saved. And if you deny that He ever was lifted up, truly, your fate is sealed. Jesus said to Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So verse 19, and here is the deciding factor. Okay, here's the deciding factor. We talked about that that word condemnation, it means decision. 
And this is the condemnation. This is the deciding factor. You could read that that way. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This word condemnation means decision. And this is the deciding factor. That when the light came, we scurried into the woodwork. We scurried away, and we were hiding from the light. Why are we hiding from the light? We hide from the light because our deeds are evil, you see. Light has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the light of the world. Light is self-evidencing. Okay? Step into a dark room and no one argues when the light bulb comes on that there's light in here. No one argues with light. No one. It's it's self-evidencing. Okay? It proves its own case. So is the gospel. Matthew Henry says it proves its own divine origin. But you see, sinners are biased against the light because they love the darkness of their own way. We are biased against it. Man sinned originally in the pursuit of knowledge. Genesis 3, verse 5 and 6. Satan convinced her that if you did this, you would become like God and no good, no good and evil, you see. Man sinned originally in the pursuit of knowledge, but now in his fallen state, man does not want to know the knowledge of the truth. Man does not want to have the knowledge of the truth. And so everyone practicing evil hates the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Well, so your condemnation is greater because of who you have disbelieved. See, There's scripture to prove that statement. That there is, there are different levels of condemnation. There are different levels of punishment in hell. There are different degrees of judgment. But your condemnation is greater because of who you disbelieved. We had, for instance, we have Christ come out right here in person. He was, he was on the earth and declaring God to us the most trustworthy person to ever walk the earth, we refuse to believe him. You know, that is why our condemnation is just. Our condemnation is just if we should refuse to hear him. I want to quickly turn to Luke and drive this point home. In Luke 10, we see this in chapter, in Luke 10, verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 8. Luke 10 and verse 8. A little lengthy passage of Scripture, but I want to to read this. Here the Lord had sent 70 people out, 70 of his disciples out, to minister into the villages that he was soon to come to. Notice what he says in verse 8. Whatever city you enter 
and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the day for Sodom than for that city. Isn't that amazing? That it's more tolerable for a practicing homosexual than for somebody who just is passive when the gospel is preached and they are just ah oh, you know there is more tolerable for a an immoral sexual homosexual perverted person than it is for the person who heard the gospel and despised it Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven. Why? Because the headquarters for Jesus Christ were in Capernaum. His ministry was out of Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. It is terrifying. For you to sit under the gospel and not repent. It's terrifying. And so for Judas it was said, it would have been better if he had never been born. And so it is with you. It would have been better if you'd have never been born than that you should go through life hearing the gospel and despise it and sleep your way through the sermon. Hebrews 2 in verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape? So great is salvation, which at the first began to be spoken to us by the Lord. God's initiative again. The Lord himself came and spoke to this salvation to us and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. How will you escape if you neglect that great salvation? Hebrews 10, 26. 
For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You know, I struggled with this verse for many years because I know that I have sinned since, I'm, since, I was, since I've received the knowledge of the truth. I know I have. I've even sinned willfully. But I think what this is saying, that there is a hardened heart that is going its own way. There is a direction here. If we sin willfully after we have received what we know to be true, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain and fearful expectation of judgment. This word expectation is the same word we have, I believe, for hope. We have an expectation of good, but there is a certain and fearful expectation of judgment. Of judgment, the same, the same word that we use in condemnation and in John 3, the same word. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Listen, I told you I had the good news earlier. This is the bad news, unbeliever. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? He counted the blood of the covenant as pig's blood. He counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. What a promise. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful. Well, I want to close with a quote from Matthew Henry where he said, Unbelief may truly be called the great damning sin because it leaves us under the guilt of all our other sins. It is a sin against the remedy, you see. It is a sin against our appeal. Unbelief is truly to be called the great damning sin. There is no forgiveness for the sin of unbelief. None. That has to be rectified. You must believe. Let me, re- let me restate the good news of the gospel here at the end. If you are in unbelief, cry out to God. Notice what John 3 verse 21 says. That And, and I had to think of Cornelius in, in Acts 10. Because I, I don't fully understand this verse in 21, 321. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. I had to think of Cornelius, a devout man, praying often. But he needed to be saved, right? He needed to be saved. And so if there's a fear of God in you, 
cry out to God. He will hear you. You can cry out to him. He will save and abundantly pardon. As far as he will remove your sins as far as east is from the west. And you can join us in rejoicing. There is now no condemnation. We are no longer distinguished for destruction. Now we're distinguished for salvation. Praise God. Praise God. And so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. Well, Lord, bless and keep you and we'll be dismissed.